Today's episode of the Ryan Russillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like sports, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get you a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Like players in baseball saying, I may not even want to play, bro. I'm going to get to that here in a second. Jeff Passan also is going to spend about 45 minutes with us talking baseball. Is this going to happen this year? Some days it feels good. Some days it doesn't feel so great. So get a teammate who can help you just play a little long toss with. Get ready. Spring training, maybe right around the corner. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. Little dirt bike in the background. Never hurt anybody. So Blake Snell, really good pitcher for the Rays, really good a couple years ago, um, was on Twitter. Excuse me, not Twitter. Twitch is like what everybody's getting caught with these comments, which I would admit like that part kind of sucks that you're just sort of on the stream and you should know better. I get it. But like sometimes there's these moments where it feels less formal and you're just flying off the cuff. And Snell, who again, a month or so ago had said that coronavirus is no worse than the flu. Uh, he's been getting trashed. I mean, like there's almost no one taking aside it for, except for Bryce Harper. And as soon as I heard Harper's comments, I was like, man, I feel even better criticizing Blake Snell. Um, and then Bauer, who, you know, is just out there when it comes to some of this stuff. And then I thought Arenado made the most sense. And it's it's hard to tell guys like, hey, you know what? Actually, you're supposed to take a loss here. I know that if I'd signed a multi-million dollar contract, that it would suck to go, hey, you know what? Like, I'm going to lose some of this money. And Snell said, quote, I got to get my money. I'm not playing unless I get mine. Okay. Um, you got to all y'all got to understand, man, for me to go, for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. So now he's either changed his mind or I don't know if it's some sort of negotiation and that's what he's doing. And he's saying these things where he's just letting it know like, Hey, it's not just even about the union. It's about my money here. Well, here's the simplest thing. Like he cannot play and not make any money. All right, cool. Done. And if he wants to go ahead and do that, cause he thinks the risk is too great, then go ahead. He could do that. But yes, it's not going to play well. And then for Bryce Harper, who his comments being off didn't really surprise me a ton with Bryce Harper, but Harper saying, Hey, needed to be said, bro. You know what? There's tons of stuff that actually doesn't need to be said. And this was one of them. Yes. I'm sure every single player, you would like to keep all of your money. I would want to do the same thing, but would I read the room a little bit better? I'd like to think I would, maybe that's just being a little bit more, um, I'm not going to say educated. I think it's just being around a little bit longer. I think sometimes when you're so rich and you're so successful, you can kind of be isolated from reality of like, hey, I might think I'm right, but to say it needed to be said, needed to be said, bro. Yes, no, definitely. In the middle of one of the highest unemployment surges ever, you definitely needed a pitcher saying, I need my full salary. Uh, And I'm not even against how I would, probably feel at that moment like i wish i could keep my full salary but i would know i would be smart enough to not say it publicly and then have other guys trying to chime in because it's like all right i understand it baseball your battle with the ownership over decades prior to any of these guys that are even talking about this stuff their animosity their lack of trust all those things that we're going to talk about with passing like i get it but what then happens which i think is a huge mistake wow look how vocal snell is look at harper having his back look at bauer Look at some of these other players. These guys really don't want to play. Like, what about all the what-if scenarios? I was reading a piece on The Athletic from Stark where it was, okay, what if a player says he doesn't want to come back and play because he feels like he's at risk? Can he get excused because of pre-existing conditions and therefore still get his pro-rated salary? And then you start thinking like, wait a minute. Is that the first thing that you should be worried about? 
And then if it's real, or is it another guy that maybe just doesn't want to play or doesn't want to play with that team and he wants to get the service time, get paid, and then not have to re-sign with that team and become a free agent and let the year count? Well, wait a minute. Does that make any sense? Like all of these little things, and they start realizing like some of these solutions are as if the entire world is worried about a peanut allergy. And I'm not saying that coronavirus is the same as peanut allergy, but what I'm saying is that we've all had those moments, right? We were on the plane, you're traveling, and you go, hey, there's somebody, maybe it's a child, a lot of times it's a child, and you go, there's a peanut allergy here, so no peanuts for the rest of the plane. And you're like, all right, that's cool. I'm in the air for a few hours. I can handle not getting a little satchel of peanuts. But if you're starting to look at these things on a much grander scale, whether it's baseball, basketball, or football, and coming back and saying, okay, like Sean Doolittle, who I like a lot, reliever. And he's like, look, my wife has all of these health conditions that I'm concerned with. So if I'm exposing myself by going back out there and playing, I could be putting her at risk. It's hard to tell Sean Doolittle like, hey, no one would say you're wrong. But what you'd say is, yeah, that's that's tough. That's really tough and something that you're going to have to make a really tough decision on. But because of that concern, which is valid, no one is suggesting it isn't, we can't make that decision based on your sole circumstance. Like Larry Nance Jr. with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's got Crohn's disease. And he said, you know, I hope they would think about me when they want to start this up again. I think there's a nice way to say, yes, the NBA is thinking about you. And then there was even some studies when I started reading about this and the medication that he takes where some doctors are saying, actually, it helps your immune system to a point where he would be fine. Anyway, I don't know. I just read it. It was online. Doesn't mean it's true, but I read it. But I think the NBA would go, yes, those are valid concerns, but your team is not going to be in the playoffs and your season is going to be over if you even have any remaining part of the season. And we need to get the rest of this going in the right direction. We've got to turn this ship around, even if it means a few people are more at risk. And the Snell part was hard to believe because he had just apparently changed his mind about how serious he thought the virus was. So as all of these different things come up. Hey, does this mean Mookie Betts is going to be a free agent? Could he sit out the year? What does service time mean? All these little minor things for baseball, they're they're all just a list of things that are worth acknowledging, but shouldn't be overriding factors in any kind of decision actually getting this sport started again. And that's the mistake at one point that I felt like the public was making with the NBA, where I had operated from the situation of from everything I'd heard that the players actually want to come back and play, which I think people forget like, Hey, you know, what's weird. Here's a weird thing. Guys that play sports their whole lives like playing sports. I know, I know, I know it's fucking crazy to think that, but it's true. They like it. They like that part of going out and doing something awesome because they're awesome at it. But we can be tricked into thinking that there's so many players of concerns because there's players that have real concerns that are vocal about it and it gets covered and you start thinking, man, like at one moment there with baseball, I'm like, well, wait a minute, does this mean like a ton of baseball players don't actually want to play? There's a Mike Trout story out there and I don't know if Trout's going to want to play or not because his wife is expecting and then you worry about the risk there. Again, all valid risks. If there's one massive point of this message that I hope gets through to you is that I'm not dismissive of any of this stuff. But what happens when it's this big of a decision, it becomes a, all right, yeah, that's that's tough. Like, that's a really tough deal that you have to worry about. And I don't mean tough in the dismissive sense, but more along the lines of, like, it's noted, but we're still going to try to get this thing started again 
July 1st. We'll ask Jeff Passett about that coming up in a few minutes. But first, Miller Lite. I was thinking about Miller Lite the other day, Kyle. During this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over a beer today looks pretty different. As the original light beer, Miller Lite has always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller Time. Miller Time is a moment for people to come together in real life to connect over a few beers. But having Miller Time is tough when you can't be with your people. Um, by the way, Shellbacks is opening for takeout. And I didn't even know you could do that, but I just um, wanted to give you a heads up, Kyle, if you and your crew head down to the beach anytime soon, they're doing to-go everything. That's where Was they that go. like an oyster bar? I've been, oh, really, no, been no, missing no. out on oyster bars. That's what well, it like. I wouldn't. I don't think oysters are their number one things. I think it's the Fanta shots where they mix Fanta and, and booze. What? Yeah, people love them. People really do love them. Um, I'm a little out of that range now, but I just, you know, there was there was a lot, a lot of a lot of buzz here in the South Bay about it. Miller Lite is the beer. They got Miller Lights there left and right. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, Miller Time is possible because of Miller Lite. I think you guys get what I'm trying to say here. Miller Lite is the original light beer that tastes great and is less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. You know, I was thinking about Miller Lite because I was thinking about homeschooling and all the dads out there, and I could just see a dad. At home right now, Miller Light in his hand. He had some girders that he had to reinforce. And the kid's like, can you help me with my math? And he's he knows he doesn't know the answers, but he's still not afraid. And he just goes, Hey, you know, carry the two. Although I, you know, word is they're not they're not doing division the way they used to do it. I, I found that out recently. I don't know how that came up somewhere. They're like, you know, division in some of the carrying stuff is completely different with uh, with elementary math. I was like, wow. Yeah, I was like, I can't wait to not learn more about that. But I think a Miller Lite guy would have a, a can in his hand and he would say, all right, you know, let me check this, double check this. He goes, if your teacher has a problem with that, you can have him call, you know, he or she call me directly and we can talk about your math homework. Miller Lite is the original light beer. While you're home, enjoy a classic. Available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. Before we get to passing, I'm reading the the Office book, The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s in Oral History. Speaking of oral histories, uh, Grantland was just the king of oral histories. The one on Swingers was so good. That's over six years ago now. I pulled it up to take a look at it. Alex French and Howie Kahn wrote that piece. It was just awesome. So that's what this book is, 400 plus pages. I'm almost done with it. And I love the TV show. I've seen every episode multiple times. It's just fun. I just really like it. People don't like it. It's it's kind of like, all right, fine. You know, I don't know. We'll talk about something else. We'll come up with another topic here. And it just gets better. I think it gets better all the time because of not layering necessarily, but there's just these little moments and you can tell that writer's room really pushed itself to, okay, that's a good joke. Is there any way we can come up with a better one? So instead of like, hey, that works. Okay, that's cool. That ties the scene together. We're good. And I'm only doing this as somebody that's interested in it and certainly not in this world uh, yet. But I am really impressed with how much they would push to try to find ways to make things funnier and funnier. And it, and it worked like that's, that's how funny I think the show is. And it was really a daunting task to try to adapt this from the BBC version with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant. And obviously Gervais is David Brent. It's, it's awesome. I mean that the BBC one is incredible, but anybody that does the kind of, Oh, I only like the BBC one. I don't like the American one. The American one found its own way to be great and it was different. But in the first 
very you know beginning of this when everybody thought it would suck and it wasn't going to work, they had a real problem as they explain in the book, unlike Michael Scott, where he was too harsh, he was too mean, and he slicked his hair back, and that was something that they did in the second season where they go, we have to soften him up. But Carell had also just become like a huge movie star right around that time, so that helped the show. And My Name is Earl helped the show because in the beginning, there were a lot of doubts about it ever happening again. There were executives who were just like, look, I don't get it. There's no laugh track. There's no studio audience. Like, what are you doing? And I do love these people that are creative that go, well, whatever the rules are, like, can't we do it in a different way without following every single rule? And it's always funny because people say you can't and then somebody does it and then everybody else tries to emulate what that was. But Daniels, whose name comes up twice in the credits, he's the showrunner. He's the guy, the visionary behind this whole thing, running all of the writers and and working these storylines and having his own idea about the arcs of each season, which is kind of the job. It's not just to sit there and write out every single script, although showrunners usually, from my understanding, would write you know, the pilot, write the first episode, the last episode of each season to kind of know where it's going to keep everybody in the same line, even if every single writer doesn't understand uh, what the showrunner is thinking for the entire season. Because a lot of these seasons, too, were like 20 episodes once it was beyond six in the first. And when the credits would come up, it would say Greg Daniels, producer, but then there was also adapted for American television. I thought, like, is that just one of those weird credits where it actually doesn't mean anything? And for this show, it's the opposite because he wanted this to work. Like I said, most people doubted it. John Krasinski, who plays Jim Halper, even during, and I had heard this story before, during his audition, sat down and Daniels, he didn't know, I don't think he knew who Greg Daniels was. and. He was like, you know, what do you think? He's like, I hope they don't, they don't, you know, I hope this doesn't suck. (laughs) There's a good chance it could suck. And Greg Daniels like, oh, we're going to try. We're going to try to make sure it doesn't suck. He's like, ah, I can't believe it. The audition, I just assumed that this thing might be terrible because a lot of these adaptations end up not working out, right? So there's two things that I want to bring up and then we'll get to pass in here and talk some ball. But Trying to figure out who Scott was and everybody having their different interpretation, which is kind of cool in a way. Like, not every writer is in agreement of exactly who he was. And Daniels, who says, I'm not even an actor, but I would try to figure out who Scott was. And so I started filming myself, like doing things. And he came to this conclusion, which I think is a really cool way to kind of think about the show. And if you watch it again, think of this concept. Where Daniels was like, Michael Scott should be this character that's thinking there's these cameras around me. I finally get to be the center of attention my entire life. And maybe one day, say, a Jennifer Aniston gets to watch the show. So if you think of Michael Scott, who you, know, you forget that it's it's filmed as a documentary. They do, I think, take necessary liberties at time to also keep it a TV show. But if Michael Scott's this, he's not, I don't even know if he can be labeled a narcissist, but he has these moments where he's just, he, he needs attention because of his odd family upbringing and he wants a family so he can have kids so they can all be his friends. They can never say no to being his friend because they're his kids, which he says as a little kid. And that part of this is he's putting on the show, hoping a famous female actress like a Jennifer Anson could watch it one day. It's a really, I think they use brilliant in the book quite a bit. Genius is thrown around quite a bit, but that's pretty genius. And it's a really cool way to go, hey, remember, we're writing for this person that's capable of doing this. The other part, because you know i got to bring up Pam. I'm not done with the book yet. We all know my stance on Pam. In a binge of The Office 
she starts to show her flaws in a major, major way where if you see her week to week, it's like a reliever that's like a left-handed setup person comes in and gets the other lefty out. And you're like, oh my gosh, this person's amazing. But if you ask them to go out there and pitch you six innings, you're like, this isn't going to work. And that's kind of what I think of Pam. And yet so far, every writer in the show, in this book, no one ever seems to go, you know, on second thought, we Pam, we made her out to be like America's sweetheart and everybody loved her. But man, there was some stuff there that, maybe wasn't great. Now, I again, I haven't finished the book, so I don't know if that's coming. It doesn't feel like it's coming. And the reason I bring it up is because at the Phyllis wedding scene, if you haven't seen it, Phyllis is a co-worker with all of them. And at this point, Jim is dating this other girl named Karen. Karen Filippelli. And Karen decides to like jump on stage and start singing the police every little thing she does with Scrantonicity. And Jim is kind of doing this awkward phone thing. But Karen's character is crushing it, like greatest wedding date ever. And they were like, we had to do something with Karen to make her just as great as Pam so that it was this kind of torn thing. Yet everybody was still rooting for the Jim and Pam ending that was watching the show. And I'm like, wait, so you think that that's comparable where Pam spent the entire wedding bitching about how Phyllis stole every one of her wedding ideas and the other one is singing the police on stage and you think that's a tie? <laughs> like you actually think, you created these two characters and you think that's a tie? So like I said, on the Pam thing, I I know we're we're just, we're slowly gaining ground out there, you know, little battles at a time. But even the guys that created it disagree with me. Let's talk chicken fingers. The best chicken finger meals made from fresh ingredients, Raisin Cane's. That's what they're serving up hot in their kitchen at Raisin Cane's. Raisin Cane's uses premium chicken breast tenderloins to make the most tender chicken fingers possible. And since the best chicken finger meals are hand-battered and cooked to order, that's what you'll find at Raisin Cane's. It makes a difference. I love to top my chicken fingers with cane sauce. Uh, the sauce is like a little cup. It's like a ramekin of magic. No, I need to know what it is. I don't really know what else I to saw say. The copy. I need you to explain it to me. It's just, it's just amazing. It's um, it's not ranch, but it, it isn't. It's a little spicy, but not really. It's not like a buffalo thing. What color? You know, it's, are we got, it's like a. It almost looks like a Thousand Island thing going on a little Ooh, bit. I'm, which, I'm right? But again, some people are like Thousand Island, huh? That's just basic. Nah, man. Nah, there's a lot going on there. So ramekin and magic is what I like to see. You can be sure you'll get chicken fingers made hot, fresh, and fast when you order from Raising Cane's. And don't forget your sides of crinkle-cut fries made from grade-A potatoes, toast, coleslaw, and Cane's famous tea. My favorite side is just taking a little bite of that toast. You're like, man. How come more things don't have a little toast on the side? At Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers, quality isn't complicated, and their menu is proof. They focus on only doing one thing really well, making hot, fresh, and fast chicken finger meals just for you. Stop by today. Tell them uh, I sent you, or ask for the owner. No, actually, if you ask for the owner, Todd, that's probably not going to do, do a ton for you, unless you're in Baton Rouge. Maybe it'll help. Jeff. I know that a lot of times my opinions are based kind of more on what the media is doing and how they're reacting to stuff than it is maybe the actual subjects, because I think a lot of times it's kind of straightforward. It's like, I feel this way or I feel that way. And one of the prime examples of this is uh, 
once basketball was shut down and within hours, some players were saying, hey, you know, I'm donating money. And then I thought a lot of people in the media were doing the typical pandering thing where it's like, well, what about the owners? Because that gets tons of action. And my rant wasn't about that every owner was going to bail everyone out. It was that, are you seriously doing this hours after they just shut down the basketball season? Can we can we give it a few days to kind of see who does a good job with this and who does a bad job with this? And that, in some circles, has turned into me defending billionaires. Uh, I've been as pro player with the NBA stuff as you can imagine. Um, the NFL guys, like it's not even they, rooting for them. It, it, I can't even imagine rooting for NFL owners in negotiations. And baseball has such a bad history that all of us understand the lack of trust. It's an inherited thing. Like, hey, you're part of players' union. All right, let's let's tell you a little history here. So. As baseball's trying to find a way to get this season started and salvage this and take advantage of this opportunity, really, to be a product that people can consume here quickly, as you've written about, whatever the agreement was in March, that's not what the owners want now. And the fundamental problem is this 50-50 split, which 50-50 always seems to play well. But the problem I have with this is, am I not? Am I supposed to do the thing I normally do where I go, I don't trust the owners, I don't trust the owners, there's stuff in here that I don't, inside with the players, or do I hear from certain players that we'll get to here where I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about, where you feel like, oh no, am I actually leaning pro owners? So that was a very long intro to kind of set you up to where you're at now covering the story and trying to figure out what's going to happen with baseball. There was an interesting presentation that was made, Ryan, last Tuesday at the first really face-to-face -face or Zoom-to-Zoom -Zoom meeting that the players and the owners had. And at this meeting, the presentation essentially said that the owners are going to lose so much money, if even if there are games this season, that, you know, interpret that what you will. We, we didn't, we're not going to say 50-50 split, but just here are the economics from our end. The thing is, upon closer examination, the economics don't make any sense. The economics look like, and, and I've been using this example a lot lately, but I feel like it's extremely instructive. Paul Beeston, the former Blue Jays president who worked at Major League Baseball, uh, is quoted as once saying, uh, under generally recognized accounting principles, I can turn a $4 million profit into a $2 million loss. That's what ownership does. That's what they have always done. That is the trick. That is the magic. That is how they get rich. That's how billionaires get rich. By, by taking one thing, making it look like another, borrowing against it, taking risk. And so much has come home to roost over the last two months for these owners in baseball that they are going after labor at this point and, and using the coronavirus as a cudgel in many cases, to try and get theirs, which is which is funny because what they're doing, Ryan, is just not saying it out loud like that. That's what Blake Snell did, and and that was the that was the mistake I think that the union runs into a lot of the time. They used to be so incredibly disciplined. Everybody, everybody, everybody stayed on message. Right now. When you have Twitter, when you have Instagram, when you have Twitch, when you Twitch. have all these different mechanisms. Yeah, Twitch. Twitch is where it happens, too. Twitch is where Bryce Harper talked. It's where Blake Snell talked. When you have all these different ways, when you have all these different people who have access to you asking questions, 
baiting you, goading you, it makes it really difficult to keep 1,200 guys on message all the time. Yeah. I, before we do all the Snell stuff, though, I mean, it it sounds like we understand the accounting part of this, okay? You know, football for years has had these these side businesses where it's like, well, actually parking mm-hmm. and concessions here is a part of, you know, that's called DC experience. So that's not the Washington Redskins. That's this whole other right. thing. And the accounting is, is really, really tricky. So are you of the belief that baseball owners are using this? It's kind of sounds like well, that's what you're saying. You're using this as an opportunity to change the economics around, even though they may be facing massive losses to still take it out on the players. Or is it that they're, yeah. they're being legitimate here and saying, Hey, for, for this to work, let's just both accept the fact that like the numbers on this are going to be different. We know what your contract says, but that's not happening. And yeah. we need some sort of 50, 50 agreement here, which then sounds kind of like the salary cap. Cause that's really what a salary cap is more in the NBA and the NFL than just, Hey, this is the real number. This is agreed upon percentage split like a partnership and baseball is like the only sport that doesn't have it as far as the major ones that we're talking about. I guess it sounds like you think that this may be taking advantage of the situation from the ownership side more so than the owner's first priority, just trying to get baseball back. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that there are some teams that have real legitimate financial concerns. Well, like of course the revenue abs- sharing's out. So it ha- that has yeah. to be true. Sorry to interrupt, but. There, no, there are absolutely some overlevered teams out there that uh, are looking potentially at bankruptcy, and and yet the the whole thing about that is the the way that it falls out. If if one team gets bankrupt, okay, you know MLB can come in, stopgap, pay the pay the players, pay the employees or whatever employees are left on teams after this, honestly, because that's a whole another disaster that's unfolding right now. Uh, the number of layoffs that are happening across baseball are staggering. Um, but th- they can do that. And and they can wait for the franchise to be bought by another billionaire and all's, you know, all's well and when it's all said and done. When you have multiple teams start going into bankruptcy, then all of a sudden franchise values come down. And when franchise values come down, that's what really angers rich people when when the capital that they have built up starts to disappear by something that's not of their own doing and so that's really the end game here i think that owners are trying for they are trying to get the very best deal that they can out of this situation and it's difficult sometimes to fathom billionaires crying poor like the the skepticism on the player side is rooted both in history and in those numbers that they saw that they look at and they're like, I'm sorry, but this has been a productive and profitable business for decades upon decades now. And you're telling me that one year, one moment is suddenly going to make you insolvent? Is that really how it's going to work? And is that really what you want us to believe? Yeah, the the weird thing, if I were on the player side, I'd be like, okay, well, you go bankrupt, but you're still going bankrupt with this amazing asset that you own. Right. Um, and and it's all different depending on like what kind of debt service different ownerships are taking on. But it'd be like, like Frank, having Frank McCourt went bankrupt and still got billions of dollars for the Dodgers. Frank McCourt bought a team because Seelig liked him as Seelig hooked up all of his buddies, which is honestly atrocious what Seelig did. And <laughs> McCourt's basically borrowing against a parking lot all on paper, buys the Dodgers then borrows against the Dodgers on paper, buying up stuff left and right, and then quadruples his money because he couldn't pay for the team anymore. 
So like that was one of the greatest heists of all time. Like I would love to be as broke liquid as Frank McCourt and be that rich on paper. Like, cause it wasn't even, that's not even rich on paper. That was like rich on <laughs> like forms. Uh, so, you know, it's almost like having this luxury building where you go, okay, well you can't make the mortgage payment anymore, but you're also going to get four times the price when you sell this beach house than when you bought it a few years ago. So that's where, if I were on the player side, I'd be like, Hey man, I, I don't want to hear it. What, I, what I'm wondering though, is because I've gone back and read, this is where I got myself into some trouble when I asked Rob Manfred and then Tony Clark about declining player revenue, because there was a lot of stuff out there. Fangraphs, I think started back in 2015. Uh, they picked it up again, where they basically were saying like, unlike the other sports, the revenue split has been on the decline for mm-hmm. major league players here. So whatever the pool is, they're getting less and less of it. So couldn't there actually, if you believe all those things, because trust me, Manfred was like, that's not true. And I like Manfred. I'm just saying, I know, you know, he hasn't been popular now for a little while. It's just the job of the commissioner. I like him far more than I've ever liked C-League. But then they'll always say like, oh, minor league expenses and all this stuff. You're like, okay, you guys have always had minor league expenses. It didn't just right. start catching up now in 2015. Wouldn't, I like I feel like there's always this fundamental thing from the player side like 50-50 split no way like you know my dead body isn't there an argument you made that they actually that's what they could could have wanted in previous years to guarantee a certain cut of the revenue that they've argued now has been de- has been in decline for years there's also though and, and this goes back to the fundamental mistrust that players have once they lock something in to a specified percentage, there is the belief that baseball is going to do everything it can to take away that baseball-related revenue. The same way the NFL takes away the football-related revenue, the same way the NHL does hockey, basketball, NBA does basketball. There's always the fear that in a capped system, you are going to be worse off than you are in a free market system. And I, listen, I get that. I totally get that. The, if the player's job is to try and figure out how to maximize uh, all of the player benefits, whether it is salary, whether it's the ability to move, uh, to get free agency, to, to really have ownership in your career, uh, a salary cap system does a pretty miserable job of, of allowing you those liberties. And I think that because the the players association started off as as this I'm not going to call it a ragtag outfit but Marvin Miller was definitely not the guy who was wearing the fancy suit and and who was coming into a meeting and was going to blow you away with his polish. Now Marvin Miller walked in and he was just the smartest guy in the room. And the MLBPA has always been about having the smartest guys in the room doing the dirty work for the players who, who have the gravitas to back them up. Uh, I don't know that the union has that right now. And it, it, and it has put them in a, in a really awkward position, I think, where for the last decade, it's almost like uh, the, their identity has been lost a little bit and they're still trying to figure out how to get it back. And this may be the MLBPA's moment to do that, to, to put its you know, to, to mark the line in the sand and say, we're not going to move off of this. And it's really risky, Ryan, because if this thing blows up because of money, there are going to be a lot of fans who treat it like 1994. 
that's my biggest fear for this. And, you know, if mm-hmm. they do get back on, the ratings are going to be incredible. And it doesn't mean, okay, now baseball has been saved. It means baseball is making the most of the situation. But right. the negative, the negative of them not figuring this out. All right. So, oh, so let's dig through some of this. So you believe the 50 50 thing? Because I was wondering, like, could the players say, fine, we'll give you the 50 50 thing, but we have a list of all the stuff that we want, which I'd like to get to because the players' union does want all these other things too. Yeah. As, they, as they, they could time. absolutely. They could absolutely do that, and they are not going to. I, I I have a difficult time seeing a scenario in which the 50-50 split even gets a minute of discussion when the two parties are meeting. Yeah. No, that is that old-school Marvin Miller thing where it's like if you said, okay, yeah. we want 12-inch subs, and he would say, no, I want I want them – they have to be cut into six-inch subs. You know? I mean, it was just the way that, like, whatever you're proposing <laughs> – I don't want that. This is how we, you'd be like, wait a minute, we just offer you footlongs, but like, yeah, they, but they need to be cut into six inch increments. Sorry. It's non-starter. Uh, could, could the players union say something like, all right, fine. This is really screwed up. This whole we get it. We're talking to billions in losses already. The revenue sharing thing you mentioned, it basically has been agreed upon that because of the local revenue, I think 48% of local revenue was shared throughout all the owners and the Marlins, who I guess got seventy million in revenue sharing one year recently, where I feel like you know the Marlins, if they never get any money from anyone forever, even though it is new ownership now, I, I'd be okay with that. I think the Marlins should have to pay reparations, um, honestly, to the, to the to the state of Florida. But uh, is there any way they could do something where they say, okay, fine, we do it this year, and you, you can't even bring it up for twenty years? Like, don't ever even bring up a 50-50, any kind of cap thing. Because, I mean, this is what went back to 94, where you go, all right, we'll have it in writing in 20 years. You can't even bring it up. Although the players would say, why would we give away a negotiation in something we're already not going to agree to anyway? So I already understand the counter. Um, so maybe this whole point of mine is a waste of time, which it probably is. Yeah, we shouldn't. We should, Honestly, we shouldn't even talk about the 50-50 split. All right, so it's let's... Just not, it's it's not like, it's not happening. Okay, all right, good. Then let's just keep it going. What's... If the owners go, all right, fine, can the owners do that? Because if the owners are losing all this money, there's also another part of me that's like, well, is having the season salvaging some of that money? Because if you're going to be at such an operating loss with no fans and you're paying everybody, couldn't there be an argument to be made that it makes more sense for the owners to not even play any games? Is that out there in the back and forth? That's absolutely what they're implying. And that's what there, – there are four groups – Someone put it th- to me this way a couple of days ago, and I thought it was very interesting. There are four groups of people in baseball right now in labor relations. There are owners who want to play. There are players who want to play. There are owners who don't want to play. And there are players who don't want to play. The largest groups by percentage, uh, the largest group by far by percentage is players who want to play. I think a vast and overwhelming majority of players want to play, even with the restrictive tenets that may be there in the ultimate health and safety protocol. I think the next biggest group is owners who want to play. Then I think the group after that is owners who don't want to play. And then I think the smallest is probably players who don't want to play. And the the owners who don't want to play believe that these losses are, are going to put them in a really dark place. Now, the problem is if you don't play this year, there's going to be a completely different set of owners who are in that very same dark place because there's zero revenue at all coming in because you have nothing from TV, you have nothing from sponsorships. I mean, it's essentially 
uh, a sunk year. And, and that's, uh, you know, for the teams that have big debt service and then have to go and borrow money to make payments on their debt payments already, it just winds up compounding on itself and, and turning into a financial mess. And, and look, again, don't feel sorry for some of these guys. You put yourself in the position financially that you put yourself in, but that's the calculus going on right now. And I think the fact that the players want to play as much as they do and that owners out there recognize that there is long-term value in playing this year, in doing what you said, in bringing baseball back, in having it on every night, in trying to repopularize the sport, that it's worth every last effort you can get to go on the field this year. Yeah, that's so far, as I've probably thrown a million different things at you here, that's the most important point, that it's not the revenue for 2020. It isn't uh-huh. what are It is... Do we reverse what is a real curve of of lack of interest in comparison to previous years? Right. And and a lot of that too, it's it's not even baseball's fault. Like one of the things I always think is so funny is like people are gonna sit there and go, Oh, well, you know, baseball, 82 games. Now now I'm more into this. I'm like, okay, well then just watch 80 when they play 162. Like, who cares? Like who who would ever say, I think we listen to people who don't like baseball too much on their ideas of how to fix baseball. Like, I would never ask like somebody and be like, hey, all right, what's your least favorite sitcom? And then somebody goes, Frasier. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, Frasier's, you know, it wouldn't be Frasier. I'm just it's top of my head, right? I guess I've been it's watching a, a lot of these. No, it's a bad example, but that way I'm actually not calling out a bad show. You know, I have to be careful with that thing. So it's a good show. Can't we, I mean, can't, we call, can't we just call out a bad show? I don't like to do that. You know, all artists, right. man, respectful. Uh you know, I don't know why I just thought of Frazier is because when I was watching the 98 finals to do the pod with Bill on Sunday, the best is those 90s television promos the play-by-play guy has to do. That's always the House yes. of Buggin' ones, right? And so it was uh, it was Bob Costas reminding us that it was a double dose of Frazier every Thursday and Sundays on must-see TV for NBC. So Frazier was top of mind. Fascinating. I was right? gonna say yeah. as long as as long I just as long as we're not like dropping a Dharma and Greg on us here, like that. No problem. No problem. That, that's going. That's going a little too far. That might be. That might be on the uh, on the bad comedy list. <laughs> you know what? I forgot about that one. So go ahead. All right. So let me just use the Fraser thing as the example. And if somebody said, you know, I don't really like that show, and I would say, well, would you like it better if the season were eight episodes instead of sixteen? <laughs> you would just go like, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't like it if it's 16 or two. Let's put it this way. If I had no TV for like three months and you put on an episode of Dharma and Greg, I'd be like, hell yeah. Let's see you act. Let's see you make me laugh. Let's do this. (laughs) I would be all about it. Aren't we that starved for sports at this point that people are going to almost convince themselves to try baseball? It's it's like a it's like a try it you just might like it thing and that is that is what baseball has to keep in mind throughout this whole thing you have a literally captive audience and and people who are dreaming of live sports again and you're gonna piss it away over money you're gonna screw it up because you might have to change into your uniform at the hotel. Like, that's what we're dealing with right now. I just hope that in the end, everybody involved here has enough perspective to recognize that if they feel like they can do it in a safe 
and healthy or as safe and as healthy a fashion as they possibly can, that they give it a whirl. I, that, that to me, like, if you feel like you can do this the right way, you owe it to yourself to try. Well, I'm, we're in agreement there. I want it back on, and I'm not just doing it selfishly. I want it back on for baseball. I want it to be, you know, one of the things that I, I do find, a couple of things I find frustrating about baseball is that if you look at the postseason storylines of the last five to six years and the way some of these postseasons have played out, it couldn't be any better. It's been incredible. And I'm not no. talking about the Astros, you know, the Astros storyline at all of this diminishes it somewhat. But the stuff that you had with Cleveland and the Cubs and the Toronto stuff, I mean, it, it, these were some unbelievable moments for baseball. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like my NCAA tournament thing. It's like college basketball has a real problem, but at least they still have this moment of a few weeks of the tournament right. where everybody's locked in. And baseball's had these incredible moments, but I don't know that it's carried over on a national interest level for enough people to go like, I love the playoffs so much that I'm locked in come April and May. It's just kind of like, look, I'll get around to it when I get around to it. So let's go over some of the stuff that's brought up, though. I I don't know if it was 87 points. Was that the right number of different things that were brought up for as far as health and safety here? As you mentioned, changing the hotel, showering both before and after away from everybody else. I read about the phone being disinfected, no high fives. No dipping, although it said no smokeless tobacco in designated areas because I was like, that might be the hardest (laughs) one for them to get the players to agree on. And it's like, actually, you can go over here, but, you know, don't leave a Snapple bottle lying around because that can mess dudes up. But, uh, yeah, let's (laughs) let's 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 hammer some more of those because it is a lengthy list where I think baseball is trying to show not only its players that we're trying to protect you, but also the public and that you're going to get absolutely beat up publicly if it doesn't look like you're taking every single precaution. And and I'm going to take it one step further. I actually think this is even more than the public for public health officials, because let's, let's remember public health officials have one job. That is to keep the public as safe as possible. If you have someone coming to you and you're a public health official saying, I'm going to do something that is risky, the first instinct of public health officials is going to be say to say no. Like that's the first instinct. It is much easier for a public health official to say no and never know what would have happened than to say yes and find out the hard way that it was wrong. And so uh, it's it's really incumbent then on baseball to convince public health officials and not just one or two ryan 26 of them in all areas of the country that we're going to be doing this the right way now is is the right way by having guys wake up in the morning and take their temperature twice and then wearing masks around the stadium uh, when they're everywhere except on the field and not being allowed to use hot tubs and cold tubs and uh, like you can't give a guy a high five during the national anthem. You got to stand six feet apart there. You know, I was talking with one person earlier today who was saying it's such eyewash that they're going to make guys sit in the stands. You know, if you're not expected to play during the game, you are up in the stands and there are four seats between you and the guy to your left or right. And t- two rows behind you or in front of you. Like, is that a little too much? Is that a step too far? Eh, Maybe, probably. But even still, if modeling good social distancing behavior 
is the thing that allows baseball to come back and get the rubber stamp of public health officials and the White House and governors and mayors and all of these people who have every right to be skeptical about the sport coming back, then to me, that's the very least baseball should be doing is trying to get them on board. Was eyewash a substitute for swearing? <laughs> I was just, I was just, I was just such a great baseball word. It really right. is. I'm just, you know, I was just trying to make sure everybody translate here. All right, a couple things I still need to do here. <laughs> More with Jeff Pass in in just a moment. But Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized and actionable insights on your sleep, recovery, and daily exertion. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and it could not be more important to monitor the stress we're putting on our bodies and how we recover on a day-to-day basis. With Whoop, you get a recovery score each morning based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance. The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally based on your recovery data. The app also has a sleep coach, which tells you how much sleep you should be getting based on your goals for the following day. Wake up feeling recovered and ready to take on the day. I uh, didn't have a great night of sleep the other night. I don't know why. I'm nothing. I'm fine, guys. Don't worry about it. But didn't have a great night of sleep. It told me I didn't have a great night of sleep. And I was already like not peak. And it was saying like, this is going to be a strain day. But I hit it hard. I hit it real hard. 112. Well, no, that'd be a lot of minutes. 72 minutes. 112 on the stopwatch. 72 minute workout. No rest in between. Bands in between lifting. And somebody recognized me working out because my rack, my rogue rack is on the side of the street and a guy walked by who was like look at you look at you he didn't know i lived there and it was he's like i listen to you all the time he goes you're a real entrepreneur aren't you and i was like well I'm just doing a little chest band work i don't really okay and uh it was really nice though because he was funny and he was kind of laughing and he was but it was all approving you know and so my strain is through the roof today is what i'm telling you Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Russillo, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. At checkout, go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter Russillo at checkout to save 50%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. Service time is an issue, okay? Um, What if a guy, like, I was reading Stark's piece on The Athletic where it was like, as soon as you start figuring out, well, wait a minute, what if a guy decides he doesn't want to play, but he knows he's still going to get paid, and then they cave on that, but then is it also service time, and then is it something where you can actually, as I said in the open, like getting a doctor's note about all this stuff, and then the Mookie Betts part of this, like if nothing even happens, and then I remember, I talked to an agent who I said, I imagine you're trying to get service time for everybody that's on a 30-man roster instead of 25, he's like, damn right we are. You know, like, hey, they're major leaguers. So that's the part where you go, yeah, mm-hmm. you guys aren't cutting any corners on the stuff that you're hoping for here. Um, what do you think about the players' positions on all the player-related kind of transactional stuff where they want it to be – obviously, they want every part of this to still be as beneficial to the player as it would have been in a normal season. Yeah, and and they should, and they should hold firm on that. And there is going to be compromise there somehow. That's the thing, you know, they MLB is saying, we'll give you 28 or 30 man rosters. That's two more spots. That's another half million, you know, prorated over a full season, half million dollars or so. Uh, and and I'm, I'm very curious to see what the players push for 
or what the players ask for here. It, it, like they want their showers. And, and I, you know, it, it's been sort of a running joke that the showers are going to be the new second seat on the bus. Because if you recall back in 2016, uh, during the collective bargaining negotiations, a big criticism of the union that year was that it prioritized the creature comforts that players wanted over, you know, stuff like getting the competitive balance tax higher so it doesn't serve as a soft cap or yeah. or any number of other economic issues. Now, that's exaggerated a little bit, but they did they did get beaten in that agreement. They got beaten pretty handily. And you know, someone someone was joking yesterday, I wonder if MLB put the the shower thing in there to rally the players around that so they could trade showers for 100 million dollars. I mean that's the way so that's the way sometimes that people see the union as as a group of very impulsive guys who get stuck on something and and who will lose sight of of what the truly important thing is here. And that's why uh, I I hate to keep bringing it back to the the Snell and Harper thing. That that's when the true colors were shown. Everybody in the union wanted to say what Blake Snell actually went out and said. Everybody, that's what they have been thinking about. And it's it's just the, you know, as much, Ryan, as this shouldn't be about money, isn't it always about money? Yeah, it always is. So let's, let's stay on the Snell thing, because I talked about it in the open. And, you know, Snell, I would say, is at best, pretty dramatic in some of his assessments. And I still can't figure out the timeline of like, wasn't he just saying a month ago it wasn't that big of a deal and now he's saying he's risking <laughs> his life? So then I was like, is he actually that calculated that he's publicly negotiating for a full salary here? Uh, do the players think? Like, this is where the players would lose the public. Not because working guy, hauling sheetrock is making so uh -huh. much an hour. Like, I'm not doing that, okay? Like, we all have to be fair here in that, yes, there are teachers that don't make enough money, but it's because more people can be teachers and people don't like it when I say it, but that's the grown up conversation and not, not many people can sit out there. No, and throw it's, 95. It's, it's, it's just, it's that, right. It's that Blake, it's that Blake Snell can do what 99.999% exactly. of humanity cannot. That's right. all. And, and people who have special people who have special abilities there, listen, there are teachers who are in that top 0.001 percentile who should get paid. Like, uh, I mean, they should get paid really well, much better than they do. Right. Different I like story, your, your pro teacher save there, but I'm I'm just the person like when I <laughs> when I worked my ass off late as a laborer, I didn't resent millionaires because I had a bad back at the end of the day. Like I was doing something where it's like a lot of people can do what I can do, and that's why I'm not making more money. I, I don't understand why people resist that. Maybe because it's just more people in the laborer group than there are the elite of the elite. So when Snell says this. And then Harper chimes in, which again, I was like, oh my God. Um, I think Arenado's maybe the only one where I was like, okay, this makes a little bit of sense. And I'm glad you said it because I said it the same thing at the top with the the NBA. Once I found out like the players' union voted you like not unanimously, but overwhelmingly in favor of coming back to play, like you see the Snell stuff, you see this Harper, you see Bauer, who's never afraid to say stuff. You're like, wait, do players not want to play? And then you go, oh, actually, no, like you said, a lot of players do want to play. And are these guys in this group though that think, yeah, sorry, we signed these contracts and we should be compensated like to the last dollar? Cause they'd lose everybody if that's what they actually think. 
I think they felt like they signed a deal on March 26th. And let's let, like let's look at the landscape back on March 26th. It's two weeks after sports shut down. It's about I think it's because what day was Rudy Gobert? Was it the 10th? Was it the 11th? 11th, or 12th? I think. Third. Okay, yeah, because I think two days two days later it was baseball. It was the NCAA tournament. It was just like this this deluge. Uh, I have to say, within two weeks, we had a pretty good sense that there wasn't going to be sports for a while. And we had a pretty good sense that there were not going to be fans back when, when sports did come back. And so the, the perspective that the players have right now is that we signed a deal that guaranteed us our prorated salaries. And we want to get paid for doing what we do, for being the ones who are taking the risk for for going out there and hopefully helping save baseball and give the country something to look forward to. I don't think that's a losing argument. But this is not about a, a winning or losing argument. This may just come down to something legal. And if you go and look in the document, March 26th, it talks about a discussion that needs to be had if there are no fans in the stands and how there need to be good faith. I think, it, I think it's a good faith discussion is the way that it's put. And Major League Baseball is going to lean on that, and it's going to lean on that hard, and it's going to lean on that until we have a game of chicken where we're going to be barreling toward June 1st, and they're going to have agreed on the health and safety stuff, and they're going to have agreed on all the other things, and it's going to come down to money. And man... If this comes down to money and it doesn't happen, they've got nobody to blame but themselves. And, and the way that they will lose baseball fans and, and put themselves in, I, I mean, I said earlier, it's like 1994. I think this would be worse than 1994. I think this would be way worse than 1994, actually. And it would, take, it would take a decade plus to get people you'd need a whole new generation of fans and even then what are you going to sell them on you're you're the sport that could have come back during the pandemic and couldn't figure out how to divvy up billions of dollars that's that's what you are that is the that is the the most damning branding you can possibly have yeah that's the part where baseball uh you know none of this is fair right no one no one knows in the moment. You're like, what's going on? Uh, I uh -huh. have said that as, as much as I can read about this, I get incredibly frustrated if I read it every day because I think there's some <laughs> stuff out there that's misleading on purpose. Um, I think anybody trying to be positive, it's like you're, you're shunned. But then at the same time, I don't want to feel like I'm not taking this seriously. And then I'm thinking, oh, right. hey, whatever players, just go back out there and play. Like This isn't that big of a deal. Like I'm not in that camp either. Because you just can't. You can't do that. You can't be liable for all of these players, hundreds of players here, and sitting there and say, ah, whatever, we need the revenue and bring it back. But an agreement in March is just a completely different, like, it's just the, the idea of understanding of what this was then versus now, I think of two completely different worlds. And do you, though? You, you, don't, you don't think the end of March, I don't know that we ever know what's coming tomorrow, right? 
Like that's that's where we are in this world. If you told me that something catastrophic was going to happen tomorrow, I'd say, yeah, that could happen. If you told me that we're going to have a great step toward a vaccine tomorrow, I'd say, yeah, that's that could happen too. I have no idea. But what I do know is that there will be high moments and there will be low moments. There will be ups, there will be downs. There will be this, this chaotic roller coaster of life that we are riding right now. And I think March 27th, when that deal was signed, we had a sense that it was going toward that. It sure as hell felt like that at the beginning. I mean, that was early on in lockdowns. That was, hey, what, what's happening here? Like, is, is this really going to last? That's epidemiologists putting out, you know, the multiple million death number. Like, that is, that's the point where we're like, okay, this shit is serious. We know it's serious now. And we better start taking it that way. So no fans and stands, I think, was a, a very realistic thing at that point. I just don't know that, that you can argue how you felt as opposed to what's in the language on the paper. Yeah, I guess I, the no fans thing, you have me there. But um, compared to what I was reading in March and how people felt about it in March and the idea that we could have spring training here in June, I think that is a bit of a reversal. Uh, I think it was the unknown is more of a doomsday, and I'm not I'm not criticizing anybody with a doomsday thought of it, but I, I feel like either we're recovering in an error here, or recovering in a way that maybe people weren't saying was even possible back in March. So that's the part that feels very different. Can, to we, me. can we can we can we go back to can we go back to something you just said? I actually find it very interesting that optimism is being shunned or shouted down. Or I'm trying to think of the right word for it. And, and I think that there have been some who have, have accused people, whether it's the ESPN or otherwise, of, of rooting for sports to get back as a bad thing. And I just have a really difficult time trying to understand why it's a bad thing to want it back. Maybe if you want it back so badly that you start pushing forward this, this notion of bad policy or of things that are going to harm wide swaths of people. But man, I, I just, it, the idea of saying it's not safe, we got to shut things down right now, we're not going to at least give it a try, flies in the face of what the rest of the country and world are doing right now. Like there, there's just a point at which there needs to be a reopening. And I don't know if it's now, but it's happening all over the country right now, whether we like it or not. And major league baseball as an industry is not going to be the super judicious ones, like say the NBA, which has made 75% of its revenue. Like these decisions yeah, that's, are that's going kind of the, to be made. Right. That's the thing that baseball kind of the beginning of this back and forth where it's, it sucks for them because, you know, it sucks for everybody for different reasons, but baseball was about to get started and they're on the fly yeah. trying to do this. And I think they were trying yep. to come up with a compromise that sounded nice. We all know that 170 million over that many players really isn't that much of, a, uh, of really money at all. It was a nice little headline. It made people feel good, but they're still 
thinking, wait a minute, are we really going to be waiting until July 1st? Are we really going to be doing an 80-game season? I don't think anybody knew any of those things because we still don't know, and we still don't know what this reopening is going to be. Some people think this reopening is the yep. worst idea ever, and then other people are like, you know, let's go, let's go. You're going to have to reopen with risk, and then if it ends up being the wrong call, then you're going to shut everything down again, which obviously would be catastrophic, but would it be better to just never even try? And that's kind of where I've been like, I don't think I'm selfishly rooting for something that's dangerous. I am suggesting that Maybe everybody try and let's see what happens. And, and then you start talking about risk and life and all this stuff. And then it's like, okay, cool. I'm 40 something minutes into a podcast here and I'm talking about science again that I don't really understand. And I don't <laughs> want to do that to the listeners that much more. All right. So let's, let's leave on this note. Um, well, no, I mean, you know, Bill and I talk about it every I'm, Sunday and about 20 minutes in, I'm like, God, you're like, all right, I, you know, I've said my piece. No, but do you, do you, do you know why I'm laughing? Because, because that you're all of us right now. You're like the to to me the lasting impact of of the coronavirus. Hopefully, is that it pushed us all to the absolute wits end of our psyches, and and let us know how much we could take before we just snap. And and we're all at that point right now. I think the answer is about two and a half months. We're all like, okay, done this before, been here before, had this conversation don't want to do it anymore. And I get it, man. I totally get it. It's just like, it's this, it's this unbelievable reality with which we have to live. And the fact that we're two and a half months into it, uh, makes me, it like makes me think we're going to be able to get through this. We can do anything for two and a half months. Uh, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a pretty good chunk of time. And we are very adaptable as human beings. and. Uh, I think we're going to figure this out. And the idea that baseball can be part of that, getting back to some semblance of normal, uh, is is something that I think we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. So that's where I want to leave this then. You think this is going to happen? You think despite all of these things, because it feels real negative right now, but you mm -hmm. think they figure out a way to make this work and we have baseball at the beginning of July? Right before, right before we started recording this, I was talking with the GM and I said... How Which confident one? are you? I'm just kidding. I, I, nah. A good, a good I, one? I no, no, no. I would never do that. I don't, don't tell us. I'm just messing with you. But he better I'm be one of the better ones. You. I would, I would, I would never, I would never I know answer you that question. I know you. Come on. I know. Did you ever ask Bill, by the way, or do you know who sent the Moss text? Remember Moss, wasn't it Moss to Patriots that he tweeted? Oh, no, I'd never have asked him about that. I totally forgot about it. Man, that's quite the uh, the recall. I mean, if you're, if you're going to ask me who the random general manager I'm talking with on a Monday afternoon, like, that's a historic moment right there. That's I'll bring it up. people would want to know. Kyle, All note right. that. Yeah, Kyle, we'll have to note that for our next show with Bill. <laughs> um, he said, yeah, he said, I'm optimistic. He said, I'm confident. Um. And and I I'll tell you what before I read the health and safety document, I was at like seventy five percent coming back. In the immediate aftermath, I was like, eh, it's probably more like fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like I was up. Uh, I got that on. Maybe I think it was late Friday night. And I was up until like five o'clock in the morning, just reading through it. And man, like reading through sixty seven pages of of legal ease about coronavirus and testing and all of these things. 
is a terrible way to spend a Friday night. Just awful. And after that, I was like, oh, God, we're not going to see baseball this year, are we? But I, I'm, I'm back at the point where now I think that there are things in that document that will go away. There are things that will be difficult to execute. But listen, we're, we're in a time right now where we got to do things that are uncomfortable. And I think that baseball recognizes that and that the players are going to be on board with it and they'll figure something out. He is at Jeff Passan. He's been all over the story for ESPN. And as always, uh, appreciate the amount of time you put in this today. Thanks, man. We got another one coming this week. TBD. Not ever since sure. Uh, by the way, thank you for checking out the American Kingpin book with Nick Bilton. That podcast last week. Amazon uh, sold out of the paperback that day when that podcast came out. So I went and looked at the Amazon and the true crime. It was three of the number, three of the top four books were different um, versions of American Kingpin. So you guys yeah. uh, got after it and bought that. I know. I, I kind of was like, holy. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of bragging, but also thanking you because I was really impressed. I was, I was surprised to see that. So um, I'm sure Nick was thrilled. He was. He sent me a note. So um, keep subscribing. Keep getting the word out. And we'll talk to you later this week. 